This morning we're going to unpack uh, the next section of John chapter 16 together. So I want to invite you to go ahead and turn over there. If you have a Bible this morning, it's John chapter 16, about the first half of the chapter. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we, we have Bibles for you. So let me go ahead and remind you that there are Bibles at the beginning, or excuse me, at the center of each aisle uh, under the chairs. So flag somebody down who's sitting over there. They'd be happy to pass one to you if you don't have one. Take it with you if you don't own a copy of the Bible. We'd love for you to have it. And we would love to talk to you about anything that you read there. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, if, if maybe you're considering Christianity or aren't familiar, that familiar with the teachings of Christianity, um, maybe one of the things that you do know about Christians and don't understand is that Christians believe that God is a trinity. Maybe you've heard that word and have no idea what it means. Uh, life, lifelong uh, churched people know the word and feel like they have no idea what it means, so you're in good company. The short of it is that we believe God exists as one being. But that this being is not like any other being. That at its core, at, at, at the core of who this being is, is, is a structure of three persons. So we have one person to one being. That's us. That's the human nature, right? But God is not like us. He is one being but three persons. That's the, that's the mystery problem is that it's an impenetrable mystery. There's just no getting through that. You can't understand it, so just give up, all right? And you can read about it. You can understand more about what the Bible says about this mystery, but you're never going to get to where you feel like, oh, I got it. You're never going to find an analogy that just makes it pop for you that doesn't also lead you into affirming things that Christians through all time have said are dead wrong. And you don't want that. Can't cut into the mystery of what the Trinity actually is. But... One of the most beautiful things about the Bible's descriptions of God is, his, is its descriptions here and there of how the Trinity works. We might not understand how one being could also be three persons, but we can understand what the Bible tells us the Trinity does for us. Maybe another way to put it is, we can understand how the Bible describes the Trinity as good news. There are certain things that we desperately need, that we wouldn't have if God weren't one in three persons. There's certain things that each one of the three persons uniquely gives to us, offers to us, that we wouldn't have and can't do without. So one of the best ways to get through the, through the, the sort of frustration of the mystery of the Trinity into the encouragement that the Bible wants us to have by thinking about the different parts of the Trinity is to look at what the Bible says the different parts of the Trinity, the different persons actually do for us, how they contribute to us making it to heaven. That's one of the sections, that's the focus of one of the sections that we're coming to here in John. We've seen it already. John is... John is one of the main books that helps us understand that God is one in three persons. He has some of the, the most helpful texts about how this thing works. And one of the, one of the texts that we come to this morning uh, is, is, is a clear testimony to how the Spirit is meant to help us live for Christ, love Christ, and ultimately get to heaven. Promise, it's a promise this morning. That's what the text really is. It's a reassurance. Jesus is talking to friends who he's about to leave. These are friends who had staked everything to him. They had lives. They were, they were making their way through their lives just like their fathers before them and their fathers before them. They had jobs and professions, families. They put it all on hold because they were staking themselves to this man. 
They were convinced by their experience of him that he was the future. And now, after all that, after three years of waking, walking, eating, sleeping with him, he's just told them that he's leaving and they can't come. He knows they're saddened by this. I mean, imagine if you took a spot at a new job because you were just captivated by the vision of the executive. Let's say maybe he's just started his company and he's recruited you to help him make something great. And a month after you start the job, he tells you he's taken a better offer somewhere else. How do you feel then? Or you're a graduate student and you like the work of this particular scholar and he's accepted you to work on his team and a month after you get there, he's taken a tenured position at another university. And you're left there wondering, what do I do with my life? That's where the followers of Jesus were on this night. And that's why Jesus is spending so much time, so carefully bringing them in to why it's good that he leave. Why, even, even more, let me say it more clearly than that. Why it's better for him to leave than to stay. Can you imagine How could it be better that he not be with us than that he be with us? And and here, friends, is where we're getting into, we're getting closer to where this text is going to minister to you this morning. How could it be better for me not to see the one I'm living for? How could it be better for me to suffer and not hear his voice than to have him hugging me and telling me it's going to be okay? How could it be better that Jesus is not with me now? That's exactly what Jesus is wanting to answer in John 16. It's better for you that I go. Verse 7 says, here's what we want to ask this morning. Why? Why is it better that Jesus should go rather than be with us? I want to focus on how the Spirit helps us. This sets Jesus up to make promises about a helper he's going to send. How does the Spirit help us? And the text breaks down really, really nicely for us into two sections. Give us two different ways that the Spirit helps us. The first is in verses, really, 7 to 11. The next one is in verses 12 to 15. The Spirit helps us see ourselves, see why we need Jesus, basically. And the Spirit helps us see Jesus helps us see why Jesus can meet our needs. That's the simple message of John 16, 5 to 15. I want to read it together first, and then we'll unpack it together with the time that we have left. I'm going to ask you now if you would please stand with me in honor of God's word while we read. This is the word of the Lord, beginning in the second half of verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now... I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. 
And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but... Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Spirit helps us see ourselves. That's verses 5 to 11. And key verses in this section are verses 7 to 11. This is the promise that it's good for Jesus to leave his followers because his leaving them is how he's able to send the helper to them. And they need the helper because the helper is the one who's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's the pretty simple, straightforward message of verses 7 and 8. So two questions to unlock the meaning of this good news that Jesus is pitching to us, okay? Two questions. What is this conviction that he brings? He says it's good news that he goes, because when he comes, when, when, when he goes, he'll send the Spirit. When the Spirit comes, the Spirit will bring conviction. What is this conviction? And then second question to unlock this good news. What does it mean that he convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment? What is this conviction that the, that, that the Spirit will bring to the world and... What does it mean that, that he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Two very closely related questions, but separate questions we want to handle one at a time. Let me talk about conviction first. What does it mean that the Spirit is going to convict the world? Here's what one New Testament scholar says about it. The verb that he uses here, okay, in verse 8, occurs 18 different times in the New Testament. And here's what the scholar says. Arguably, in every instance, the verb has to do with showing someone his sin, usually as a summons to repentance. Arguably, in every instance, every time it's used, has to do with showing someone their sin, helping them to see it towards repentance so that they would leave it. They would see it, recognize it, be done with it. Here, we're just talking about that verb convict. We're not talking about the word sin that comes later. Says he's going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Here we're just talking about the word convict. And the, the word convict, 18 times it's used, and always in and, in and of itself, apart from adding things like sin, righteousness, or judgment, it has to do with showing the wrong, with demonstrating guilt, with demonstrating some sort of wrongdoing. But here we need to be careful, all right, with the English word. Because we've put the English word convict into this verse. And usually, I think, I think in, anyway, for me anyway, probably for you too, when we hear the word convict, the first thing we think is that he's come to pass sentence on the world. Right? To be convicted in a legal sense, in our, in our way of thinking, is to have a judge or a jury give you some sort of sentence. The evidence has been weighed, it's been presented, and now there's a conviction that comes. Right? But that is not what... John is, John is recording here. It's not what Jesus is saying to his friends. There is a judgment of the world to be made. John's been talking about that before. There is, there, there is a sentence to be passed, a sentence of guilt. 
But that's not what the Spirit comes for. I think another passage in John that we've seen that helps us understand this one better is back in chapter 3, where, where he's talking about, or John is talking about Jesus coming into the world because God so loved it. God so loved the world, he sent his son into the world. And he says he didn't come in the world to convict the world. Right? The world stands, what he, what he says is, the world stands condemned already. There's just a default judgment already passed on the sin of the world. When Jesus comes, and now when Jesus sends the Spirit, it isn't to pile on. It isn't to add conviction. That's already there. It's to, it's to save those who would otherwise be condemned. He comes to save. Same thing, I think, comes out of the, the context where, where Jesus is talking here. What he's been doing is he's been telling his friends, I'm leaving, now the mission is with you. You're going to do the works that I've been doing. Which is to say, you're going to go all around and you're going to tell people that the kingdom of God is coming. Repent and believe in Jesus. That's going to be your job. But let me warn you, as you do that, trying to get people in the world to convert to him just like you did, you're going to face resistance. They're going to reject you just like they rejected Jesus. The world on its own just like any person who's ever even come to faith, hates Jesus. That's what he, say, that's what he said already earlier in, in his talk with his friends. So he doesn't need to now say the Spirit's going to come and pass sentence on the world. No, what his disciples need, the good news that they need is not that the, that the Spirit is going to come and, and expose the guilt of the world. What they need is some help convincing people who are in the world that they should be with Jesus. Because that's the job Jesus has given them. And he's already told them, you're not up to that job. People are going to reject you. So why is it good news that Jesus goes? It's good news because he's sending the Spirit. Why is the Spirit such good news? Well, the Spirit, he's going to convict the world. He's going to demonstrate guilt to the world. He's going to show them what they really need. I think that, that the point here is not one of judgment but one of redemption. The Spirit is going to call people to faith in Jesus by showing them why they need Him. The purpose is not dismissive. The purpose is redemptive. What the Spirit does when He brings this conviction is not swing a big spotlight over onto the sin of the world so that everyone can see it, so that everyone recognizes it and mocks it. No, no, what he's doing is, is taking blinders off of the eyes of those who are in the world who can't see where they, what their true condition is. He's going to demonstrate their guilt to them. In college, I had a friend who showed me that I have, he called me on this really annoying tendency that I have uh, to cut people off in a discussion before they finish saying what they're trying to say. I'm tempted to ask for a show of hands on how many of you have been cut off by me at some point or another in conversation. I remember him asking me if I treated my wife that way, if I was constantly just cutting her off, and how she puts up with me. And the answer is, yes, I do treat her that way, and I have no idea how she's put up with it for 11 years. But that guy calling me on that was an awakening moment for me. I didn't recognize that I'd do that. And it started me down on this process of reasoning through why does a person do that? Well, he does it because he's an arrogant jerk. He thinks he's got people figured out. He thinks he doesn't need to hear what they're going to say because he already knows what they're going to say, so he may as well just move on with it. It would be more efficient if we just got skipped ahead of that to the, to the response that I want to give you. 
person does that if they're afraid, afraid that they won't be able to get their point across, that if they don't say it now, they'll lose it. This friend, shining a spotlight, or maybe even better, taking off the blinders that I had to, to this tendency in my life, did not fix me right away. I still do it to this day. And friends, thank you for being patient with me and, and, and letting me do it and still having conversations with me. But I, I'm aware of it now. And I'm fighting against it. I'm trying. And that friend helped me to see this about myself, not in order to embarrass me. He didn't do it in front of anybody else. He did it in a gentle way that was clearly loving. He'd already established that he loved me. We had a relationship. And in that context, he helped me to see something about myself I wouldn't have seen otherwise. It was a gift. It was convicting me, not passing sentence on me and sending me off but helping demonstrate my guilt so that I see it anew and can do something about it. That's the role of the Spirit. He's one who shows hardened sinners why they need Jesus. He's one who, to to pull from the promise of the prophets about the Spirit that we've referred to a few other times, He's the one who comes to to give hearts of flesh to people who had hearts of stone. He's the one who comes to breathe new life into what had been a valley full of bones. He gives life where it wasn't. And this is what it looks like. He has to demonstrate guilt first. For him to crack a heart of stone requires that he demonstrate guilt in regard to sin, in regard to righteousness, and in regard to judgment. That's how I'm understanding how this passage unfolds. The sin, righteousness, and judgment are the three things that the Spirit has to demonstrate guilt about. He has to show you you're wrong about your sin. You're wrong about your righteousness. And you're wrong about your judgment. What do do I mean here? Let's do these one at a time. So one of the greatest barriers to anybody coming to Jesus is a failure to see sin as a problem that needs solving. And most, more often than not, this is definitely true for anyone who's not yet a follower of Jesus, but I, I'm going to say even, even now, having been a follower of Jesus for a long time, still a problem for me is to, to feel what I ought to feel about things that I do that Jesus has asked me not to do, has told me not to do. I don't get the feeling when I sin. I don't, get a, I don't have the feeling that I wish I had of, of awareness of why it's such a big problem. I don't have the feeling that you get if you are driving down the interstate and you see lights in your rearview mirror, right? That's a feeling in your gut that you get, whether it was you or not, whether you'd actually done anything or not, you, you feel it. But especially if, you had, especially if you have been doing something wrong and you know it, right? And you know that the person who has the right to expect you to do better has, has caught you. That sin, if you will, has a feeling to it. You feel the weight of it. I don't often feel that with sin. And, and what John has said is that no one ever feels that with sin unless the Spirit gives them new life, unless they're born again. So why does the Spirit have to come? Well, he's going to need to convict the world about sin before they'll ever have any interest in Jesus. Because ultimately, this is what Jesus says is that they don't believe He's got to convict them about sin because they don't believe in him. They don't believe that he sees them. They don't believe that he made them and has a right to command them. 
They don't believe that, that Jesus has a personal stake in them. That they're in a relationship with Him. That how they respond to Him affects Him. That He is implicated in the choices that they make. I don't see that. The Spirit has to come and convict them of sin because they don't believe in Jesus. The Spirit has to come and convict them of guilt, demonstrate they're wrong about righteousness. This parallel to hold, the righteousness is similar to the sin, right? That's the way he set it up here. He's got to convict the world for sin, righteousness, and judgment. Those three things got to be similar to each other. So, so it sounds like righteousness sounds like a good word. Why would you want to convict someone of guilt regarding righteousness? It sounds like a good thing, but in, in their case and in John... Righteousness, like he's talking about it here, is a false righteousness, an empty self-righteousness that doesn't do anyone any good, that actually keeps you from seeing just how bad off you are, keeps you from seeing why you would need what Jesus offers. So, for example, we've seen Jesus confronting the Pharisees and other religious leaders, leaders in Israel who were sort of the uber-elite spiritual people. They were the ones who had the law and had built lots of other layers on top of the law that helped clarify that they were the ones who got it, right? So these were the people who come to Jesus after he's healed a man that no one else could heal but done it on the Sabbath. These are the religious leaders who come to him and the, the tagline, the punchline, the headline, whatever you want to, however you want to think about it, the headline for them about the whole event is not that Jesus has healed this person but that he's done it on the Sabbath, they had a kind of righteousness they were clinging to that wasn't going to do them any good. And ultimately, friends, all of us have it. All of us are relentless self-justifiers. From petty things like what we decide to wear to big things like how we decide to, to spend our lives, what careers we choose, how we parent our children. From the, from the smallest to the largest things about us, we are hardwired to try to make ourselves just in the eyes of other people. Imagine what it is that you get passionate about. What is it that you're passionate about? Is it a certain way of understanding things, a certain kind of intellectual engagement? Is it a certain kind of service that you think is really important? What is it that you're passionate about? Now think about how you think about others who don't share that passion. I wonder, I wonder if that's where you can recognize your tendency to justify yourself based on the choices that you're making. And to whatever extent you're doing it, you are upholding a righteousness that needs to be exposed. What you need is the Spirit to convict you about righteousness. Same thing goes for judgment. Again, the judgment that the Spirit brings conviction about is, is the judgment of the world. Not, not their being judged, but the judgment that they're making. They're the ones sinning. They're the ones upholding, developing, holding on to a righteousness. They're the ones doing the judging, but their judgment is off. They're looking at the world. They're looking at Jesus. And all through the story of John... So far, they've been passing judgment on him. They've been hearing his claims, they've been seeing his deeds, and they've been saying, not for me. 
In fact, some of them have even been trying to kill him. They've been passing judgment of him on him in a literal sense. They, are going, they, they deem him guilty and worthy of execution. And every person that's ever lived, every one of you sitting right where you are, you're making judgments, okay, about life, about what it means, about what you should do in it. And on our own, as part of the world, all of our judgment is off. And the Spirit has to come to convict us, show us the guilt of our miscalculations, our misjudgments, because what Jesus says is that the ruler of this world is judged. Your judgment has aligned you, he's saying. The judgment of the world aligns the world with the ruler of the world who's already been judged and whose days are numbered and who will be crushed once and for all. So we need the Spirit to come and convict the world about its judgment or else they're going to go with the one they've sided with. They've backed the wrong horse and they don't see it. That's what Jesus is saying. The Spirit has to come and show them. The Spirit's coming was meant as good news, as a reason for comfort to his friends, as a help to them in their responsibility to witness to Jesus in the world. And the way that he does that is to help people who would otherwise reject Jesus see why they need Jesus. Now, how is that good news for us this morning? I want to first uh, speak to any of you who are here this morning and, and who are not yet believers in Jesus. Thank you for being here. We are so glad that you decided to come and and be here with us this morning. Maybe you're wondering, even as I'm talking now, whether sin is a problem worth considering. I I get that it's old-fashioned in the sense that it's something that that was accepted a lot more broadly a hundred years ago than it is today. That there's pretty much no one who would ever have been excluded from anything because they thought sin was real, whether they were faithful Christians or not. Maybe you're wondering whether or not sin is a relic of some era. Wondering whether you are already what you're supposed to be. I wonder if you would be willing to ask God, even if you're not sure that He's there, to show you what's true about yourself. That would take some courage from you. But I wonder if you'd be willing to do that. To ask Him right now, and throughout this day, even if you're not sure He's there, To ask him, God, if you are there, would you show me what's true about yourself? The Spirit has come to give eyes to those who don't see themselves correctly. And until he does, friend, you won't see any need for Jesus. You just won't. Would you consider asking him to show you yourself? Believer, if you do see sin as a problem, if you have recognized that you have no righteousness of your own, that that there's nothing else worth living for or trusting, then I think what you've got to connect with in this passage is that the only reason you see is that God has given you the gift of His Spirit. There is no credit for you to claim for your intellect or good judgment. There's no superiority for you to feel over those who don't believe. There's only this. There's only gratitude. Gratitude that God, by His Spirit, 
has traded out your heart of stone for a heart of flesh. That God, by His Spirit, has opened the eyes of your heart so that you see what are the riches of your inheritance in the saints. What is the greatness of God's power working for you? You wouldn't see it unless Jesus had sent the helper. He had to go so He could send that helper so that you could see what you see this morning. Praise Him for that. And the last bit of good news I want to I want to draw out of this is for those of you who are reaching out to people in your life who don't believe. And I think the takeaway for us from these first few verses is that we've got to trust the Spirit. It's a hard thing to try to reach out to people who don't believe for so many different reasons that can be as different as the person in question. There's fear. One of my main, that's one of the main reasons I struggle in evangelism. There's a fear that, for me, that I'll be backed into a corner that I can't get out of. I don't want to have my weak faith exposed. I don't want questions that I can't answer. I want to always be three or four steps further down the road than the person I'm talking to. And I rarely ever feel that when I'm sharing Jesus with somebody either for the first time or in a counseling situation. More often than not, I feel I have moments where I'm sitting there across the table from someone who's talking to me, and I'm thinking to myself as I'm listening to them, I hope you keep talking because I have no idea what I'm going to say when you stop. And that, that experience is unpleasant, okay? It's unpleasant, And so it makes you not want to go there. And the built-in reflex we have is against putting ourselves in situations like that. And so the easier thing is just not to engage people with Jesus. And then then you go to a talk on evangelism, and what's the response in your own heart? You're so guilty. Oh, I hate hearing people talk about evangelism because all all it makes me think about is that I'm not doing any evangelism. I wonder if that sounds familiar to you. The amazing thing about God's grace is that when he gives us a duty, like the duty Jesus has given to his friends here to be on, on mission, witnessing to Jesus everywhere they go, when he gives a duty, when he challenges us to take action, God always does so not to cause us more guilt, but he does so with the promise that he gives to us what he requires of us. His promise is not that he needs us, but that he chooses us to be his instruments. That he uses us to be conduits of his power, not ours. So friends, in this passage, talking about what the Spirit is going to do, he's going to come, he's going to convict the world about these things. What he's saying to you, wherever you are, he's looking on you in your weakness and your fear. And he's saying to you as your Savior, in the midst of your indecision and your fear, He says to you, not, why don't you evangelize more? He says to you, I will help you, my friends. I will not leave you alone. What kind of friend would do that? No, I'm going to my Father and yours so that He and I can send you what you really need. You are not alone. 
This is what Paul's picking up on in 1 Corinthians 2. Paul says, I didn't want to come in wisdom. I want to come in the spirit of power so that when he works, all who see it know that there is one reason that person now thinks Jesus is beautiful instead of ridiculous. And that reason is that the spirit has changed their heart. Friends, he makes this promise through you to the people in your life. There's no reason not to go for it. And much more quickly, I want to I close by looking at the second thing that the Spirit helps us to see. And it's in the last four verses of the passage, verses 12 to 15. Spirit helps us see ourselves, right? He's talking about the world here. He's also talking about every single one of you who believes in Jesus because you were part of the world before you did. Anyone who ever sees Jesus as beautiful has had the Spirit do this for them. Helps us see ourselves, truly. But then he also helps us see Jesus. We need both things from him. We need, we need to see what we need, and then we need to see Jesus as the thing that we need. We need to be connected with our own poverty, and then we need to be connected with his riches, okay? And the second paragraph here, verses 12 to 15, is all about how the Spirit helps us See the beauty of Jesus. I want you to follow the the thought process here. Jesus is saying, I have a lot more to say to you. Couldn't say it yet. You can't bear it yet. You're not ready to hear all the things that I'm going to do that I want to bring you in on. But when the spirit of truth comes, verse 13, he will guide you into all truth. So what does that mean? This all truth. Does it mean he'll guide you into successful, bettable stock tips? Does it mean he's going to guide you into where you should go to college or who you should get married to? It's much more specific than that. Jesus explains it. If, he says, for, excuse me, for, he'll speak what he hears. What is it he's going to guide you into? Oh, he's going to guide you into the things that he hears. Further, he describes it as things that are to come. He's going to declare what he hears. He's going to declare the things that are to come. John, that's never like end times, world ending sort of things to come, but what's about to happen in the life of Jesus, the hour that had not yet come, the hour that has now come, the things that Jesus is about to do, his death, his resurrection, the coming of the Spirit, the founding of the church, the spread of the gospel into all nations, these things that are to come, that's what the Spirit's going to declare. It's the things that the Father had planned and brought his son in on, sent his son out to accomplish the things that Jesus is saying now he's bringing his friends into. No longer do I treat you as servants, he said. Now I'm treating you like friends for I'm I'm taking what I received from the Father, I'm telling it to you so that you're on mission with me. And and now we're getting a little bit further inside. How is he going to get it to us? The things that he's doing? The things that his father hashed out with him and sent him here to do? The Spirit is going to declare it to you. He'll take what he hears... What's mine, Jesus says, and he'll give it to you. Maybe another, another way to connect with this is the simple statement at the beginning of verse 14. He will glorify me. That's what the Spirit came to do. He came to make Jesus seem glorious to those who follow him. It's all about Jesus. You see how this thought process works? It's all about him. Everything the Spirit does is about glorifying Jesus. He takes what he hears, 
all that belongs to Jesus, all that Jesus is about to do, and he gets it to people so that they see it, so that their response is not just an intellectual one, but one that glorifies Jesus. That's a response of worship. That's a heart that's kindled with fire for the thing that it's now seeing for the first time. He wants Jesus to be glorious. He wants Jesus to be affirmed and accepted. He wants him to be pleasing to those who understand him. And that's his work, to be in the followers of Jesus, glorifying Jesus in them. Here's a couple images that I like from, from one of my favorite writers, a guy named Michael Horton. So, so don't think of the spirit here as a Jiminy Cricket-style guide, right? That's sort of sitting up on your shoulder telling you what to do. Don't think of him as, as, uh, as the same thing as intuition or a sixth sense or some, some, some sort of uh, superpower of reading people, right? No, no, the Spirit's work is all about Jesus, about seeing him for the glory that he is. Here's Horton's images. The Spirit is the guide. The Son is the destination. I think that's really helpful. What does the Spirit do? How does he help us? He guides us so that we can see Jesus and love him. Here's another one. The Spirit is the matchmaker uniting us to Christ. We're described as the church as the bride of Christ. Think of the Spirit as the matchmaker that brings that bride to her groom and causes her to love him. The Son is the content, Horton says, but the Spirit brings all of God's words to pass and makes them fruitful. The Spirit convinces us to inwardly embrace Christ. That's what he does. That's how he helps us. The beautiful thing about this passage is that he's, Jesus is just promising a gift to us here. He's not asking us for anything here. He's promising a gift to us. Here's what Horton says. The Spirit is not a resource that we use. This is not a manual for how to use a power tool. This is a promise of a person who's going to do something for you. The Spirit, Horton says, is the God who claims us for his purposes. Not a resource that we claim and put to use, but a God who claims us for his purposes. So what do we do with that? It's just promise here. How do we take a promise and actually do something with it? We've got to be careful about that, first of all. We've got to be careful about turning this into some sort of duty, some sort of how-to. But I do think there's a takeaway here for us. There's a takeaway. There's something for you to leave thinking about this morning and trying to work into the rhythm of your life. We've got to learn to pray for the Spirit's help. If your faith is cold right now, is your heart cold? Do you feel like you've, you've sort of been hearing about Jesus, maybe reading about him, but nothing is happening there? seems distant and detached from you, you know what the solution to that problem is? Spirit is the solution to that problem. That problem gets solved when God gives you a present. So pray for it. When you recognize the disconnect between the things that Jesus says and what's going on in your life, how many of you are there? There's a disconnect for you between the things that you know about Jesus that you maybe have understood, things you've read, heard that he said, and then, and then what you do 9 to 5 or 24-7 or however you want to think about it. Is there a disconnect for you? It's hard to see what Jesus means for the things that really weigh you down. Well, we can help you with that. There's some things that, that we can talk about. 
places we can point you in the scriptures, but ultimately that's a gap that the Spirit has to fill for you. He's the one who's got to help you make that connection. So pray for him. If you're stuck in sin, one of the things that John has consistently pointed us to is that your sin problem is ultimately a problem of affection. It's a love problem. You love the things that you shouldn't love more than you love the things that God is and offers to you. And the Spirit is an agent of love. It's His job to stir up your heart so that Christ is glorious. And when Christ is glorious, when Christ is the object of your highest affection, then the sins that you may feel trapped in right now will no longer have the same hold on you. Friends, don't give up. If you are feeling powerless against the sins that you can't shake, the Spirit was given to you so that you would not face this struggle alone. He was given to you to connect you with the vine. And it's being connected to the vine, abiding in the vine, that real fruit comes. It can come to you, even you. But it's going to take the Spirit. So what do you do with the promise of the Spirit? You claim it. You pray for it. And you worship the God who's given him to you. Father, please help us now to savor Jesus and all the sweetness of what he offers us through the power of your Spirit who comes to show us who we really are and to show us how beautiful Jesus really is. We want to embrace his work, lean into his work, not resist it. Help us, Father, by that same spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.